from the Limbic, I'm Sonali Silva and welcome to the Limbic Podcast. My guest today has said that being an oncologist is to have a window into how people from different walks of life contemplate their mortality. But in a society that struggles to view any death as good, it's also an unmistakable opportunity to share what at least constitutes a better death. Recently, I had the great pleasure of speaking to oncologist, award-winning author and journalist, Dr. Ranjana Srivastava. Ranjana is a regular columnist for The Guardian newspaper. Her first book, Tell Me the Truth, Conversations with My Patients About Life and Death, was shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. And her second book, Dying for a Chat, The Communication Breakdown Between Doctors and Patients, won the Human Rights Literature Prize. In 2017, Ranjana was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for her contribution to doctor-patient communications. In this episode, I share a conversation that Ranjana and I had at the end of last year about empathy, difficult conversations, and what she's learnt about dying well. Ranjana, you've written many acclaimed books over your career. You're a regular columnist with The Guardian and you practice as an oncologist. When did you know you wanted to make space in your life to do both in your career? Because for many people, I think there's an internal struggle to find your calling. It's often a one or the other conversation. Um, what was that conversation like for you? Oh, gosh, that's interesting. I mean, I never... I thought getting into medicine was reward and gift enough, and I had never really anticipated uh, becoming a, a journalist and a writer in the public eye. I have always written. I've been writing since I was 10 years old. I continue to write journals, uh, one for myself, one for my children. And then somewhere along the line, well, probably when I wrote my first book, which came out uh, sometime in the early or mid-2000s, I was then asked to... Uh, write a couple of op-eds here and there. And I like the idea of writing op-eds. Yeah. And what was it about writing at that particular point in your career that appealed to you? I think in particular, writing columns in a newspaper means that you learn the art of brevity and you learn that you need to have a point and you need to make it quickly and forcefully um, and, and then being a doctor, you also, and, and I took pride, I take pride in appreciating both sides of a story. And so it was almost, I, I think I began to write almost as a way of uh, improving myself and improving my own uh, clinical acumen and my own judgment by being able to express my thoughts in writing and being able to make an argument. And they just sounded like, good things to do for their own self. And then I was fortunate enough to, to be asked to write for The Guardian. Initially, I was writing every now and then. And then after doing that for a year or two, I was incredibly surprised one day when I was offered the role of a regular columnist on issues of medicine and society. And I just think it to be a wonderful public platform from which to democratize medicine. Yeah, you said it so eloquently, democratizing medicine. I think that goes to the heart of what medical journalism is all about. Ranjana, you've written that curiosity, empathy and reflection are the beginnings of what it takes to be a doctor. 
Is your writing an outlet for reflection? Do you intentionally use the medium to give yourself that moment to reflect? I would say so. Writing is a wonderful means of solitary uh, self-reflection and self-examination. And I have written for that reason. When I entered medicine, I used to come back with my head filled with stories and so many patients and so much goes on in the hospital. I often like to say that as soon as you enter a hospital, you trip on stories. And it seemed to me that there isn't the time or the space to debrief about everything that happens to you with other people. Some of it isn't necessary. Some of it there's just no time for but you could always write things down. And I really wrote things down to, to tie up the loose ends of my own day. And that was really, that has always been the primary motivation for my writing. And I feel that anything else is, is the icing on the cake. If I can get it published somewhere, if someone else wants to read it, someone benefits from it, that's a good thing. But ultimately, I, I feel that for me, writing has been a a pursuit to help myself. Ranjana, you occupy a very unique space, having written, researched, treated and spoken to hundreds of patients and their families about death and dying. And these are conversations that potentially have the power to influence the way people go on to experience their healthcare journey from that point on. And I wanted to ask you what you've come to understand as being most important in these moments. What are the small things um, in these moments that matter most? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and actually quite a profound one, because there are so many things that go through your mind uh, in that moment of the doctor-patient relationship. If you're giving bad news, uh, disclosing a, a terminal diagnosis, discussing a poor prognosis. First of all, I think for any trained clinician, what's on top of mind is how do I share information? How do I uh, dispense knowledge that makes sense and that will sink into the patient because many times very important decisions are riding on the fact that the patient understands the conversation, such as, you know, will they have, are they interested in having chemotherapy, for example, that may not necessarily benefit them too much, where the harm may uh, obscure any benefit. Do they want to pursue a clinical trial? Do they even believe what I am saying? How do they know whether to trust or not? Um, but I really feel that of all the conversations that I've had in the last 20 years, I think if, if you were to ask me the one thing that makes the greatest difference to a consultation, I would say is the doctor being mindful. Uh, what does that mean? Well, in the modern era, first of all, it means looking away from one's devices. Uh, there's the phone, the pager, the laptop, the computer. Now we have multiple monitors on one computer flashing numerous results and reminders. And to take your mind off all of that and really focus on the person in front of you uh, is, is so important. Making eye contact, looking at the body language, um, Figuring out through that what space, what headspace a person is in. Are they even listening to you or did they stop at the sound of, you know, your, your voice or as soon as they walked into the room? And I think if you become too absorbed in dispensing medical knowledge and in trying to figure out medical decisions, which ultimately you have to do with the patient, 
it's uh, it's so important in those first few minutes to just be with someone and that's difficult it's difficult because these topics are often emotional and all of us want to just get through the moment uh, but but i would say that that's made the greatest difference where i have paid attention to a patient's suffering distress uh, and then gone on to trying to problem solve rather than the other way around. Ranjana, increasing rates of reported clinician burnout are, are well documented. Long hours, not enough time with patients, fatigue and stress. It's hard to be compassionate and have empathy when you're struggling yourself under those conditions. Is our health system conducive to compassion and empathy? I think about this a lot. And, and having lived and worked in many places around the world, I have not found any healthcare system that allows you the luxury of endless time to somehow delve into your compassion and empathy uh, and, and you know, rewards you enough for that, that everybody is happy. So I, I don't like to think of it like that. And I like to think that, um, yes, we can always tweak the system, but but pretty much we have to learn to apply these skills in the system we work in and not wait for some dramatic change whereby we will be able to employ these absolutely essential skills to the doctor-patient relationship. So finding, you know, and, and sometimes it's not the time, it's, it's actually the feeling that matters. And you can be compassionate and empathetic in a short amount of time. It's what you bring of yourself to the consultation. And I... While time actually does help, um, I don't think it's the only factor. I think it's a way of thinking. And if you can think your way through the fact that an essential part of being a clinician is to display kindness and compassion and hold people's hand through their journey of illness, then you learn to do it alongside dispensing knowledge, treating and writing prescriptions. Uh, and, and I would like to think that, uh, that, we, that I myself try to make time for all of it, but I just don't think that there will be some, some other world where we will have this endless time where we will say, okay, here is this time to talk about medical things, and here is the time to talk about your medications, and then here is the time to have this deep and meaningful conversation. It does all have to come together. And it's actually quite um, inspiring to watch veteran doctors be very good at this in a limited amount of time. And, and I think these are skills that absolutely can be learned and honed. Ranjana, there was a time early on in your career where you experienced the profound impacts of empathy and kindness, but as a patient from your own doctor at the time. I've, I've been um, lucky enough to receive two Fulbright scholarships. I'm currently on one, but my first Fulbright award was in the early 2000s. And when I came back from a year of studying medical ethics and doctor-patient communication at the University of Chicago, I was pregnant with twins. Um, and unfortunately, I lost both of them. I should have prefaced this by saying that I have three healthy and wonderful children. Um, and, and, you know, that was, a, that was essentially a freak event. But uh, as I was saying before, my own experience of the compassion and empathy that my doctor showed to me really changed, transformed the way 
that I felt about that loss just in that moment. Um, and I actually uh, did a TEDx talk about that as well, about the art of medicine. So it's something that I was thinking about anyway. And then fortunately or you know, unfortunately uh, was affected by, was impacted by. And so anything I say about the role of good communication or compassion or empathy really comes from a place of lived experience. And then, and then you know, more lived experience with my patients and the, the difference that a kind word that a touch on the shoulder can make to somebody going through a rough time. And, and slowly, I mean, so much of medicine is about communication, so much of good medicine, so much I think about civil society really and how we get along with each other is about how we communicate with each other. So it seems like a, a universal truth really. Uh, and I began sort of noticing it more and more in my workplace, began writing about it more and hence I've ended up in that space. What do you remember about the way he responded to you in that moment, delivering just that heartbreaking news? What connected with you in his response? I think the first thing was that he didn't shy away from telling me the truth. I asked him whether the twins were dying and I think he could have sidestepped that question. He could have said that he wanted to get some more opinions. He wanted to wait and see. I mean, there were many, many ways in which he could have hedged that question that he may not have expected, but he looked me in the eye and he said, yes, I'm afraid so. And I think just the, the burden that was lifted from knowing what was going to happen, although it was tragic, was actually really, really profound. The other thing I remember about his behavior is that I mean, his eyes were moist. He had tears in his eyes. And if you think about it, just as listening to this story, how could you not feel sad for someone who had come in for a routine review and ended the review by finding out about this loss of a pregnancy? I mean, it's, it's just so deeply sad. And I think what he did so well is that he, and I, it, it was just natural, he was natural and he let his emotions show. And just in that moment, I'll never forget thinking that this isn't just my grief, it's my doctor's grief too. Uh, and somehow it, it eased my sorrow in the moment. I mean, obviously, you know, it was, it was me who went through it with, with my family, but I somehow felt incredibly supported and felt as if he had also been thinking about me this whole time. Uh, and, and that really had a profound effect on my experience of that loss, which allowed me then to overcome that loss and to be resilient and to go on to other better experiences of childbirth. Uh, but, but how he behaved in that moment and what he said to me could have changed so much for me and it could have been the seed for so much future distrust and distress had he allowed that to happen and that's really something that i try to remember in my consultations about how i react in the moment what i say to an unexpected question what i say to something that has come at me 
from left field, how I monitor my reaction, the words I use are so important because people go out and they turn it over and over in their heads, just like I am so many years after what happened to me. Ranjana, as you said, that moment, that conversation helped shape you as a doctor. How do you navigate difficult conversations with your patients now? You know, I, I'm a big believer in the fact that you give people the information in the most digestible way possible, and then you support them in making the decisions that they do. And this can be controversial where, especially when it comes to say extreme therapies. So there are people who I might say, the evidence shows that they would benefit from conventional treatment, whether that be surgery, chemotherapy, so on, but conventional medical treatment. And they have a very strong view and they will tell me that I'm wrong because an alternative therapist has said otherwise. I think the reaction, and, and, and for me too, especially in my earlier days, was you become indignant and you become defensive because you think I spent all these years gaining this knowledge, gaining this information for the sake of my patients. And here is someone who is just denying this and who is ill-informed. Um, but, but that's a really crucial moment in the doctor-patient relationship because I think if you provide your in, information respectfully, and you say to a patient that you will respect their point of view without agreeing with it, it leaves the door open for a person to come back. And I have seen this surprisingly quite a few times in my life where people have walked out saying, I will never ever uh, listen to your advice because I have better advice but then they have gone and experimented with, with extreme therapies that have failed. They have lost a considerable amount of money sometimes because you left that door open and you didn't ridicule the patient and you didn't, uh, you didn't scold them and didn't humiliate them. They come back because there is, just, there, there is that room. And I have become a, a, a big believer in that. Um, many times people will act against medical advice. And I have also learned how not to take that personally because this is a life-threatening moment in patients' lives and they're allowed to grasp at um, straws of hope and allowed to explore things that they feel are in their benefit or the benefit of their loved ones. And I never pretend to know everything that is going on in a patient's life. I try to get all the information I can, but I, I certainly think that a sure way of disempowering people and, uh, and not having them come back is being judgmental about them. And so, although I have sometimes very strong personal um, views about how a particular disease should be treated. Sometimes it means actually avoiding treatment. And I will say to a patient, I don't think surgery is in your best interest. You are elderly, you are frail, you have a high risk of dying from the anesthetic or in the days after the surgery, when, you know, when many of your, much of your physiology can be threatened. And the patient looks at me and says, well, I've heard all of that and I'm going to go ahead with the surgery. Um, and the thing is to not be offended by that, but to really feel that uh, 
you have provided the best guidance possible and then people have the autonomy to make decisions. Um, having said that, it is very difficult when those predictions come true and you feel like you knew it all along that this patient would not thrive, would, would struggle. And it can be really frustrating that, that this was potentially avoidable. But I think part of growing old in medicine, older in medicine is realizing that uh, you can't control everyone and you can't control everything. And so you come back to focusing on that consultation where you are mindful, you are respectful, kind, empathetic, and you give the patient the, the best information you can and then let them absorb it and make the decision they want to so that at least at the end of it, people don't come back and say, I wish someone had told me because someone did tell them. And that's really powerful to not feel as if you missed that step. Um, I wish I had known is something that is very hard for doctors to hear uh, because it makes us feel that, that we have failed the patient. Ranjana, your latest book, A Better Death, Conversations About the Art of Living and Dying Well, draws on your two decades of experience working with patients with cancer and their families, um, and it tells their stories. What have your patients taught you over this time about dying well? Now, I wrote A Better Death last year um, because I felt that so many of my patients, young and old, had conducted themselves so admirably when faced with a terminal diagnosis and when faced with death. And I thought, surely this is something that all of us can learn from, just like I have. I think a lot of those attributes are actually uh, patient attributes, people who are, uh, who are calm, who are considered, who, who, are, who practice gratitude, um, trite as it may sound sometimes, I think, you know, again and again, I feel that people who have cultivated these basic skills in life about kindness, about some sort of having a broader perspective, um, are, are people who, who tend to die well. So dying well, I feel, is um, considerably associated with having lived well. Um, and, and I go through what, what I feel some of the common elements of a life lived well has been. And they really have to do with some of the things we have, we have talked about, about nurturing good relationships and uh, being able to look at a bigger picture in life and, and practicing kindness and, and gratitude and generosity towards others, uh, etc. In terms of what roles can doctors like me play in uh, helping patients have a better death, so I would go back to the importance of having honest conversations and uh, not leading people astray by giving faint hope, but at the same time not extinguishing hope in other ways. So for me, I think it's really important to separate the inability to have any treatment from, we can still do other things. When we say, when doctors say we can't do anything, I really step back from that because that's not, that's not true. Often what we mean is 
There is no drug that will help you. There is no surgery that will help you. But there are other things beyond medicines and surgery that are extremely helpful for people. And I feel it is up to us to introduce them, whether it is to good community palliative care or to help them sustain their relationships or show people how to remain well in the twilight of their life so that they can uh, enjoy the things that are meaningful to them. But if the conversation is always around the medical intervention, it makes for unfortunately a rather truncated and, and many times disappointing conversation. So I think we can do better by asking people what brings meaning to their life than assuming that all patients care about is having treatment. So what are the big barriers to having these kinds of conversations? So I feel that one of the big barriers we have has actually not as much to do with healthcare as our society, which prefers to deny our mortality. And when you start off with that, it's very difficult, whether you're a doctor or another person, to talk openly about death and dying and planning to die. It's just not something that we like to do, unlike some other cultures where it is quite common to speak openly about mortality and embrace the, the cycle of life that contains death. But coming back to healthcare, uh, I think earlier recognition of people who are not doing well, people who are destined to not benefit from aggressive interventions, whether they are in terms of drugs or surgery or intensive care. So the recognition part is important. And then the communication part is important. How do you communicate that to a person sensitively and compassionately without making them feel that you are depriving them of something. And that's actually, I mean, one example of this during the pandemic has been this whole emphasis on intensive care and how a country might run out of ventilators, for example. And it's a conversation that has happened across many countries. And so all of a sudden we have shifted the focus of a population on how will I get a ventilator when I am sick instead of the conversation that should be, what does having a ventilator involve? What does being in intensive care involve? And if I got that sick, would it even be the best thing for me or not? And so I think those conversations require a lot of tact and diplomacy, as opposed to sort of buying more ICU beds or buying more ventilators and saying, here is a ventilator for every person. And I feel that their medicine has a lot more groundwork to do in terms of upskilling all kinds of doctors to have better communications around what matters, what is meaningful, um, what kind of end of life do people want to have. It's, uh, it's certainly not just a job for oncologists or palliative care physicians or geriatricians. I really strongly believe that every doctor should have a basic toolkit to know how to approach issues of uh, end-of-life care and help patients decide appropriately. And then, of course, there, there should always be expert help available. But um, considering the fact that all of us will die, it seems unfair that only a small percentage of the medical 
profession is charged with having these difficult conversations. And so what does a conversation like that sound like? Where do you start? So I'll give you an example of the emergency department where it's a busy emergency department. You are seeing dozens and dozens of patients. Uh, Somebody comes in, they look quite unwell. They have a host of other problems as many people in our community do. So they have heart disease and diabetes and their kidneys aren't working all that well. And so there are two kinds of conversations you could have. One conversation could be, you're not looking so well. If you became sicker, would you like us to do everything? And in that case, most patients say yes, because you want to err on the side of caution, right? You don't want the doctors to give up on you earlier than they might otherwise. And if you are associating everything with the doctors will do everything to keep me alive and I will get out of hospital, and then that is how you get down, you go down the path of being on a ventilator or being admitted to intensive care where such patients can actually have very poor outcomes. And even if they survive the actual intensive care stay, their post-hospital trajectory can be very poor. And many of these people can end up in residential care. Uh, They can end up in a very poor situation. And it's not that they should not go to intensive care, but I wish that we had that conversation earlier to preface what could happen. So that's one conversation where we will often say, what would you like? And the patient will say, I want everything. And so you tick everything and that checklist is done. The other way of having this conversation, which is admittedly more time-taking, but also requires more tact and potentially authority and and knowledge and the backing of more senior clinicians, because it's often junior staff who are having these conversations, which is the other issue, uh, is to say, well, this is the situation you are in. Um, This is where we roughly think you may be heading. And there are many ways of of predicting that, although people would say that doctors certainly get a lot of predictions incorrect, and and that is true. Broadly speaking, you can have good informed discussions about a patient to say, we feel that if you were to become more unwell uh, with all the things that are going on, it is likely that your kidneys will become worse or your breathing might become worse, your heart is failing. So there are different directions we can go in and what matters to you. And when you ask that question, many people will respond, well, what actually matters to me is being comfortable. I don't want to live forever, but I don't want to suffer. Um, I want to be able to talk to my family. I want to be able to see my family. I don't want to remain stuck in hospital. So then you begin to elicit, or, you know, I don't want to end up in residential care. I don't want to tube. I don't want to be artificially fed. So then you're beginning to elicit values of patients without saying, I don't think you should have that, but you're just eliciting values. People will often say, oh, you know, mom has now had a stroke, but she has always said she wouldn't want this, this, and this. But you actually have to spend time eliciting those things and also sometimes pushing back. So to the family that says, or the patient that says, I want everything, then to say, well, if, if your values are what you have said to us, 
then going to intensive care is unlikely to be compatible with those values. So let's look for other ways in which we can help you. So I think, you know, what patients don't want us to do is to give up on them because they say they don't want something. And that's the line that a clinician has to tread where you give people hope, you don't deny them care, but you also lead them in the direction of the most appropriate care based on your clinical judgment and expertise. Ranjana, it's been such a great pleasure getting to talk to you. Thank you for being so generous with your time and just being so giving in sharing your experiences on empathy, grief and death. We talked earlier about gratitude as a hallmark of living a good life. What is that for you in your work as a doctor right now? I would say that it's been such a privilege to to do medicine. It really is a privilege to be let into the most sacrosanct moments of people's lives. And I pinch myself every day that I go into work and I think people trust me with their problems and their pains and their secrets sometimes and it's it's such a it's such a wonderful position to be in but with that comes great responsibility and to figure out on a daily basis how to discharge that responsibility well safely respectfully is also a challenge in in medicine and that's something i enjoy as well from the Olympic, I'm Sonali Silva. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and I hope you'll join me on the next podcast. 